Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mark Twain's Letters from Hawaii. All books that Uvula Audio presents are in the public domain. Volume 5 Letter 13 Honolulu, May 23rd, 1866 Legislature continued The Solons at Work the first business that was transacted today was the introduction of a bill to prohibit the intermarrying of old persons with young ones because of the non-fruitfulness of such unions. The measure was discussed, laughed over, and finally tabled. I will remark here that I noticed that there seemed to be no regular order of business observed. Motions, resolutions, notices, introduction, and third reading of bills, etc. were jumbled together. This may be convenient enough for the members, but it must necessarily be troublesome to the clerks and reporters. Then a special committee reported back favorably a bill to prohibit Chinamen from removing their male children from the islands, and the report was adopted, which I thought was rather hard on the Chinamen. War Next, the gentleman from Kohala offered a resolution requesting the Minister of the Interior to bring his books into the house and separate the Bishops of England's printing account from his omnibus of sundries and show just how my Lord's account with the government printing office stood. Sensation. A member jumped up and moved in to amend by requesting a general inquisition into printing affairs and to strike out the offensive clause particularizing the Bishop's bill, the Minister of the Interior, an Englishman, Dr. Hutchinson, opposed the motion angrily and said, It showed the animus of the thing the way it stood. He said he was ready to produce the books and went at once and brought them in. Another member moved to table the original motion. Harris, the Minister of Finance, wanted the motion to stand unamended. He said it showed the animus of the thing too. said it was the old insinuation emanating from outside the walls of this house that the Minister of the Interior was diverting the public funds to the support of the Anglican Church, the ancient insinuation being that he was recreant in his duty, etc., said the animus was prominent enough in the language of the resolution which denied to the Lord Bishop of Honolulu the title which all the world recognized as his and called him the Bishop of England, said the Bishop always paid his bills. He, Harris, always paid his bills and gave money frequently to the Anglican Church was a member of it, would like to show of a single solitary instance where the Congregationalist members from Kohala had ever contributed one dollar, one shilling, one infinitesimal fraction of a farthing to the support of the Reformed Catholic Church of the Lord Bishop. But a king's minister couldn't be honest, oh no, and a minister couldn't be a gentleman, certainly not, impossible, utterly, oh, and so forth and so on. Wandering further and further from the question for the House and quacking about stuff that had no more to do with the subject under discussion than the Decalogue has got to do with the Declaration of Independence. This man was on his feet every five minutes for an hour. One timid commoner feebly moved the previous question once with a vague hope of shutting up the minister, but he never got a second and was snubbed in a moment and wet in his hole, as they say in California. The original motion was finally tabled, but it made a fearful stir among the ministers during its brief existence, created a bitter discussion, and showed how malignant are the jealousies that rankle the breasts of the rival religious denominations here. The vice president said he was sorry the motion had been offered, 
that it was an insult to the government, to the Bishop of Honolulu, to the House, and to all parties concerned, and it grieved him to have to put it to a vote. In the debate, His Excellency, Minister Harris, was the champion of the Reformed Catholic Church, though to save my soul I could not see what any church had to do, that is openly and above board, with the question before the House. He was the champion, and without any ill feeling toward him, I will yet express the conviction that about two more such champions would bring ruin and destruction upon any cause under the sun. Minister Harris Minister Harris is six feet high, bony and rather slender, middle-aged, has long, ungainly arms, stands so straight that he leans back a little, has small side whiskers. From my distance, his eyes seem blue and his teeth look too regular and too white for an honest man. He has a long head the wrong way, that is, up and down, and a bogus Roman nose and a great long cadaverous undertaker's countenance displayed upon which his ghastly attempts at humorous expressions were as shocking as a facetious leer upon the face of a corpse. He's a native of New Hampshire, but is unworthy of the name of American. I think from his manner and language today, he belongs body and soul and boots to the king of the Sandwich Islands and to the Lord Bishop of Honolulu. He has no command of language or ideas. His oratory is all show and pretense. He makes considerable noise and a great to-do and impresses his profoundest incoherencies with an oppressive solemnity and ponderous windmill gesticulations with his flails. He raises his hand aloft and looks piercingly at the interpreter and launches out into a sort of prodigious declamation, thunders upward higher and higher toward his climax. Words, words, awful four-syllable words, given with a convincing emphasis that almost inspires them with meaning. And just as you take a sustaining breath and stand by for the crash, his poor little rocket fizzles faintly in the zenith and goes out ignominiously. The sensation one experiences is the same as a miner feels when he puts in a blast which he thinks will send the whole top of the mountain to the moon, and after running a quarter mile in ten seconds to get out of the way, is disgusted to hear it make a trifling dull report, discharge a pipe full of smoke, and barely jolt half a bushel of dirt. After one of these incomprehensible ravings, Mr. Harris bends down and smiles a horrid smile of self-complacency in the face of the Minister of the Interior, bends to the other side and continues it in the face of the Minister of Foreign Affairs, beams it serenely upon the admiring lobby, and finally confers the remnants of it upon the unhappy interpreter, all of which pantomime says as plainly as words could say, Eh? But wasn't it an awful shot? Harris says the weakest and most insipid things, and then tries by the expression of his countenance to swindle you into the conviction that they are the most biting sarcasms. And in seven years I have never lost my cheerfulness and wanted to lay me down in some secluded spot and die and be at rest until I heard him try to be funny today. If I had had a double-barreled shotgun, I would have blown him into a million fragments. Harris deals in long paragraphs of personalities that would not be permitted in any other legislature. This man has the reputation of being an able man, and yet he was talking pretty much all the time today. And all the good sound sense or point there was in his vaporings could have been boiled down into a half page of foolscap. 
Harris is not a man of first-class abilities. But that is only my opinion, you know, not Harris's. He knows some things, though. He knows that his salary of $4,000 is little enough, in all conscience, especially as he gets nothing as acting attorney general and is not allowed to engage in outside business, and he knew enough on one occasion to vote against reducing his pay to $3,000 when his single vote was necessary to kill the proposed economy. He is an inveterate official barnacle and is generally well supplied with offices. Some say Hawaiian government is a wheelbarrow and that Harris is the wheel. The legislature voted an appropriation yesterday to have the photographs of its members taken and hung up in the Capitol. If they had known I was going to paint Harris, they might have saved about $3. Harris, you won't do. If I had time now, I would write you a little something about Harris. Under the circumstances, though, I feel it my duty to pass on to something else. Minister Hutchinson Next to His Excellency Mr. Harris, His Majesty's Minister of Finance, sits His Excellency Mr. Hutchinson, His Majesty's Minister of the Interior, an Englishman. He has sandy hair, sandy mustache, sandy complexion, is altogether one of the sandiest men I have ever seen, so to speak. Is tall, stoop-shouldered, middle-aged, lowering brow, intense-eyed, irascible man, and looks like he might have his little prejudices and partialities. He has got one good point, however. He don't talk. The Other Ministers Near Dr. Hutchinson sits His Excellency the Governor of Oahu, born in this country of Italian and American parentage and considered an American, and His Excellency Monsieur de Varigny, acting Minister of Foreign Affairs, a Frenchman. These are merely sensible, unpretentious men, nothing particularly remarkable about their manner or appearance. If Varigny were as hopelessly bad as his English pronunciation, Nothing but a special intervention of providence would save him from perdition hereafter. The Millennium at Hand I have found at least one startling peculiarity about this Hawaiian legislature. They do not accuse its members of being stained with bribery and corruption. It is a new and pleasant sensation to me. Some people ascribe this singular purity to innate virtue, while others, less charitable, say the members are not offered bribes because they are such leaky vessels, they would be sure to let it out. Doubtless in some cases one theory is correct, and the other is correct in other cases. I hope it is somehow that way. At any rate, I haven't time to discuss it. Legislature Etiquette Legislature etiquette is of a low grade everywhere, I believe. I found no exception to the rule here. All hands smoked during the session, from the highest down to the pockmarked messenger. Cow County members, or perhaps I should say tarot patch members, lay the sides of their faces on the desks, encircle them with their arms, and go to sleep for a few minutes at a time. I know they must put their feet up on the desk sometimes, but I could not catch them at it. I saw them eating crackers and cheese, though, and freely excuse them for it, because they hold long, fatiguing sessions from eleven till four o'clock, without intermission. I am grieved to say that their etiquette is a shade superior to that of the early Washoe legislature. Horse Williams was a member of one of them, and he used to always prop his vast feet upon his desk and get behind him and eat a raw turnip during prayer by the chaplain. 
more characteristics of the legislature. So much for the legislature. I came away and left them at the favorite occupation of such bodies, crowding the finance officer's estimates to the utmost limit. The last thing they did was to provide a clerk for the sheriff of Maui with a salary of $1,000, which was well enough considering that for 2000 a year and some trifling perquisites, that officer acts as the sheriff of the island of Maui, postmaster of Lahaina, custom house officer, tax collector of the island of Lanai, and probably does a little in a general way in the missionary line, though he is better at entertaining a temporary guest, as I'm aware. But you know the inevitable result. Every sheriff of every little dab of rock in this group will have to have a $1,000 clerk now. Mr. Brown disappointed. Mr. Brown has been keeping a sharp lookout for the king for nearly three months now. When we came out of the capital, we heard his majesty had been at the door a few minutes before. Said the impetuous child of nature, Blame that king! Ain't I ever... Peace, son, I said. Respect the sacred name of royalty. A correction. Speaking of the king reminds me of something which ought to be said and might as well be said in this paragraph. Some people in California have an idea that the king of the Sandwich Islands is a man who spends his time idling about the town of Honolulu with individuals of questionable respectability and drinking habitually into excess. This impression is wrong. Before he ascended the throne, he was faster than was well for him or for his good name, but like the hero of Agincourt, he renounced his bad habits and discarded his Falstaffs when he became king, and since that time has conducted himself as becomes his high position. He attends closely to his business, makes no display, does not go about much, and in manners and habits is a thorough gentleman. He only appears in the streets when his affairs require it, and then he goes well-mounted or in his carriage and decently and properly attended. And while upon this subject, I will remark that His Majesty's income is amply sufficient for the modest state he indulges in. The legislature appropriates $16,000 a year for his use, and his estates, called the Royal Domain, yield him 20000 a year besides. The present palace is to be pulled down and a new one erected. The legislature has just made an appropriation of $40,000 to begin the work, and they're going to carry it on for the next two years. There was nothing said about what it is ultimately to cost, therefore I surmise that it is the design of the government to build a palace well worthy of the name. Mark Twain Letter 14 Honolulu, June 22, 1866 Home Again I have just gotten back from a three-week cruise on the island of Hawaii and an eventful sojourn of several days at the Great Volcano, but of that trip I will speak hereafter. I am too badly used up to do it now. I only want to write a few lines at present by the live Yankee merely to keep my communication open, as the soldiers say. The Late Princess I find Hawaiian politics in a state of unusual stir on account of the king's sister, Her Royal Highness, the Princess Victoria Kamamalu Kaahumanu, heir presumptive to the crown. She was something over 27 years old and had never been married, although she was formally betrothed to Prince William and the marriage day appointed more than once. 
but circumstances interfered and the nuptials were never consummated. The princess was the granddaughter of old Kamehameha the Conqueror, and like all of that stock was talented. She was the last female descendant of the old warrior. The care of her infancy was confided to Dr. A.F. Judd, afterwards so honorably distinguished in Hawaiian history. Subsequently, the Honorable John E. E. was appointed her guardian by the king. She was carefully educated in the Royal Chief School, which was at that time presided over by the earliest friends of the Hawaiians, the American missionaries. It's now in the hands of the gentlemen of the Royal Hawaiian Church, otherwise the Reformed Catholic Church, a sort of nondescript wildcat religion imported here from England. She became an accomplished pianist and vocalist and for many years sat the melodeon and led the choir in the Great Stone Church there. From her infancy, it was expected that she would one day fill the throne and therefore great importance was attached to her acts and they were duly observed and noted as straws calculated to show how the wind would be likely to set in her ultimate official life. Consequently, the strong friendship she manifested for the missionaries was regarded with jealous eye in certain quarters and frequent attempts were made to diminish her partiality for them. The late Mr. Wiley, Minister of Foreign Affairs, native of Scotland, once sent for the Honorable Mr. E.E. and endeavored to get him to use his influence in dissuading the princess and Mrs. Bishop, a high chiefess, who visited California and the Ajax lately, from further attendance upon church choirs. He said it was very improper and out of character for the princess to sing in a choir, and that such personages in England would not do such a thing. Victoria continued her former course and remained faithful to her early friends. She was urged to desert them and go over to the Reformed Catholic Church, but she steadfastly refused. The princess was distinguished as the founder and perpetual president of a benevolent association called Aha Hui Kaahumanu, an organization partaking in the benevolent character of Freemasonry, but without its secrecy. It was composed of her countrywomen and supported by their subscriptions. Its membership was exceedingly numerous and its ramifications extended all over several islands of the group. Its objects were to secure careful nursing of its members when sick and their decent burial after death. The society always formed in procession and followed deceased members to the grave, arrayed in a uniform composed of a white robe and a scarf which indicated the official rank of the wearer by its color. The princess was possessed of immense land estates and formerly kept up considerable state. She rode in a fine carriage and had her guards and sentries about her several residences in European fashion. The natives have always been remarkable for their extravagant love and devotion they show toward their chiefs. It almost amounts to worship. When Victoria was a girl of 15, she made an excursion through the island of Hawaii, the realm of the ancient founders of her race and was received everywhere with a wild enthusiasm by her people. In Hilo, they came in multitudes to the house of the reverend missionary, where she was stopping, and brought with them all manner of things, poi and taro and bananas and pigs and fowls, anything they could get a hold of, which was valuable in their eyes. And many of them stinted and starved themselves for the time being, no doubt, to do this honor to the princess, who could not use or carry away a hundredth part of what they lavished upon her. And for hours and even days together, the people thronged around the place and wept and chanted their distressing songs and wailed their agonizing wails. For joy at the return of a loved one and sorrow at his death 
are expressed in precisely the same way with this curious people. Mourning for the Dead The princess died on Tuesday, May 29th, and on Wednesday her body was conveyed to the king's palace, there to lie in state about four weeks, which is royal custom here. The chamber is still darkened and its walls and ceilings draped and festooned with solemn black. The corpse is attired in white satin, trimmed with lace and ruche, and reposes upon the famous yellow feather war cloak of the kings of Hawaii. A simple coronet of orange blossoms, interwoven with white feathers, adorns the head that was promised a regal diadem. Six Kahili bearers stand upon each side, and these are surrounded by a guard of honor in command of one of the high chiefs. A party of chief women are in constant attendance, and the officers of the household troops and of the volunteer forces are on duty about the palace. The old queen dowager sleeps in the chamber every night. Candelabra burn day and night at the head and feet of the corpse and shed a funereal twilight over it and over the silent attendants and the dark and dismal symbols of woe. Every evening a new chant composed by some chief woman several days before and carefully rehearsed is sung. All this in the death chamber. Outside on the broad veranda and in the ample palace yard a multitude of common natives howl and wail and weep and chant the dreary funeral songs of ancient Hawaii and dance the strange dance for the dead. Numbers of these people remain there day after day and night after night, sleeping in the open air in the intervals of their mourning ceremonies. I am told of these things. I have not seen them. The king has ordered that no foreigner shall be permitted to enter the palace gates before the last night previous to the funeral. The reason why this order was issued is, I am told, that the performances of the palace at the time the corpse of the late king there lay in state were criticized and commented upon too freely. These performances were considerably toned down while the missionaries were in power, but under the more liberal regime of the new Reformed Catholic dispensation, they fell back toward their old-time barbarous character. The gates were thrown open and everybody went in and saw and heard what may be termed the funeral orgies of the dead king. The term is coarse, but perhaps it's a better one than a milder one would be. And then scribblers like myself wrote column after column about the matter and the public prints, and the subject was discussed and criticized in private circles and inveighed against in the pulpits. All this was harassing and disagreeable to the parties nearest concerned, and hence the present order forbidding any but Hawaiian citizens and lenient friends from witnessing the ceremonies. So strong is some people's curiosity, however, that the law has already been violated several times within the past week by strangers who entered the tabooed grounds in disguise. They were discovered, however, and quietly turned out. The deceased princess has lain in state now for more than three weeks. Yet still, the nightly wailing goes on in the palace yard, and the crowds of natives who conduct it increases steadily by an influx from the other islands. And lamentations grow more extravagant all the time. The missionary efforts to discourage and break up this weird custom inherited from the old pagan days are quietly rebuked in little advertisement which appears over the signature of the king's chamberlain in the public papers today, wherein he invites all natives to come to the palace grounds and stay there night and day and take part in the wailing for the departed. 
That looks like a disposition on the part of the authorities not only to check the progress of civilization, but to go backwards a little. The Coffin The legislature has appropriated $6,000 to defray the funeral expenses of the princess. The obsequies will take place the latter part of next week. I've seen the coffin, it's not quite finished yet, and certainly it's the most elegant piece of burial furniture I've ever seen. It's made of two superb species of native wood, cow and koa. The former is nearly as dark as ebony, and the latter is like fine California laurel, richly grained and clouded with mahogany. Both these woods have an iron-like hardness and are exceedingly close in grain, and when highly polished and varnished, nothing in the shape of wood can be more brilliant, more lustrous, and more beautiful. It produces a sort of ecstasy in me to look at it, and holds me like a mesmeric fascination. There's nothing extraordinary about the fashioning and planning and construction of this coffin, but it is still beautiful. The wood is so splendidly burnished and so gracefully grained and clouded. The silver tablet upon the coffin, upon which is to be inscribed the name and title of the deceased, is to cost $500. I go into these minor details to show you that royal state in the Sandwich Islands approaches as near to its European models as the circumstances of the case will admit. How Funerals of Dead Chiefs Were Celebrated in Old Times If a Sandwich Islands missionary comes across a stranger, I think he weighs him and measures him and judges him, in defiance of the injunction of to judge not, etc., by an ideal which he has created in his own mind. And if that stranger falls short of that ideal in any particular, the good missionary thinks he falls just that much short of what he ought to be in order to stand a chance for salvation. And with a tranquil simplicity of self-conceit, which is marvelous to a modest man, the missionary honestly believes that the Almighty, of a necessity, thinks exactly as he does. I violate the injunction to judge not also. I judge the missionary, but with a modesty which is entitled to some credit. I freely confess that my judgment may err. Now therefore, when I say that the Sandwich Islands missionaries are pious, hard-working, hard-praying, self-sacrificing, hospitable, devoted to the well-being of this people in the interests of Protestantism, bigoted, puritanical, slow, ignorant of all white human nature and natural ways of men, except the remnants of those things that are left in their own class or profession. Old fogey, fifty years behind the age, uncharitable toward the weakness of the flesh, considering all shortcomings, faults, and failings in the light of crimes and having no mercy and no forgiveness for such. When I say this about missionaries, I do it with the explicit understanding that it is only my estimate of them, not that of the higher intelligence, not that of even other sinners like myself. It is only my estimate, and it may fall short of being a just one. Now, after the above free confession of my creed, I think I ought to be allowed to print a word of defense of these missionaries without having that eternal charge of partiality and prejudice launched at me that is generally sure to be discharged at any man here who ventures, in certain quarters, to give them any credit or offer to defend them from ill-natured aspersions. Mr. Staley, my Lord Bishop of Honolulu, who was built into a lord by the English Bishop of Oxford and shipped over here with a 
fully equipped, established church in his pocket, has frequently said that the natives of these islands are morally and religiously in a worse condition today than they were before the American missionaries ever came here. Now that is not true, and in that respect the statement bears a very strong family likeness to many other of the bishop's remarks about our missionaries. Our missionaries are our missionaries, and even if they are devils, I would not want any English prelate to slander them. I will not go into an argument to prove that the natives here have improved by missionary labor, because facts are stronger than argument. Above, I have stated how the natives are now singing and wailing every night, queerly enough, but innocently and harmlessly, out yonder in the palace yard for the dead princess. The following is some account of the style of conducting this sort of thing shortly before the traduced missionaries came. I quote here from Jarvis's History of the Sandwich Islands. Quote, The ceremonies observed on the death of any important personage were exceedingly barbarous. The hair was shaved or close cut, teeth knocked out, and sometimes the ears were mangled. Some tattoo their tongues in a corresponding manner to the other parts of their bodies. Frequently the flesh was cut or burnt, eyes scooped out, and other more painful personal outrages inflicted. But these usages, however shocking they may appear, were innocent compared to the horrid Saturnalia which immediately followed the death of a chief of the highest rank. Then the most unbounded license prevailed. Law and restraint were cast aside, and the whole people appeared more like demons than human beings. Every vice and crime was allowed, property was destroyed, houses fired, and old feuds revived and avenged. Gambling, theft, and murder were as open as the day. Clothing was cast aside as a useless encumbrance. Drunkenness and promiscuous prostitution prevailed throughout the land. No women except the widows of the deceased being exempt from the grossest violation. There was no passion, however lewd, or desire, however wicked, but could be gratified with impunity during the continuance of this period, which happily, from its own violence, soon spent itself. No other nation was ever witness to a custom which so entirely threw off all moral and legal restraints and incited the evil passions to unresisted riot and wanton debauchery. Unquote. It's easy to see now that the missionaries have made a better people of this race than they formerly were. And I'm satisfied that if that old-time national spree were still a custom of the country, my Lord Bishop would not be in this town today saying hard things about missionaries. No, his excellent judgment would have impelled him to take to the woods when the princess died. Who shall inherit the throne? The great bulk of the wealth, the commerce, the enterprise, and the spirit of progress in the Sandwich Islands centers on Americans. Americans own the whaling fleet. They own the great sugar plantations. They own the cattle ranches. They own their share of the mercantile depots and the lines of packet ships. Whatever of commercial and agricultural greatness the country can boast of, it owes to them. Consequently, the question of who is likely to succeed to the crown in case of death of the present king is an interesting one to American residents and therefore to their countrymen at home. 
The incumbent of the throne has it in his power to help or hinder them a good deal. The king is not married, and if he dies without leaving an heir of his own body or appointing a successor, the crown would likely fall upon either His Highness Prince William C. Lunalilo or David Kalakaua. The former of the highest blood in the kingdom, higher than the king himself, it is said, and Kalakaua is descended from the ancient kings of the island of Hawaii. King Keoua, father of Kamehameha the Great, great-great-grandfather of the present king, was also the great-great-grandfather of Prince William. But from Kamehameha the lines diverged, and if there is any kinship between William and Kamehameha V, it is distant. They both had a common ancestor in King Umi, however, a gentleman who flourished several hundred years ago. Prince William is called 11th in the descent from Umi, and the present king only 14th, which confers seniority of birth and rank upon the former. But this subject is tanglesome. Prince William Prince William is a man of fine, large build, is 31 years of age, is affable, gentlemanly, open, frank, manly, is as independent as a lord and has a spirit and a will like the old conqueror himself. He is intelligent, shrewd, sensible, is a man of first-rate abilities, in fact. He has a right handsome face and the best nose in the Hawaiian kingdom, white or otherwise. It is a splendid beak and worth being proud of. He has one most unfortunate fault, though. He drinks constantly, and it's a great pity, for if he would moderate this appetite or break it off altogether, he could become a credit to himself and his nation. I like this man, and I like his bold independence, and his friendship for and appreciation of the American residents, and I take no pleasure in mentioning this failing of his. If I could print a sermon that would reform him, I would cheerfully do it. David Kalakaua The Honorable David Kalakaua, who presently holds office as the King's Chamberlain, is a man of fine presence, is an educated gentleman, and a man of good abilities. He is approaching 40, and I should judge is probably 35 at any rate. He is conservative, politic, calculating, makes little display, and does not talk much in the legislature. He is a quiet, dignified, sensible man, and would do no discredit to the kingly office. The king has the power to appoint his successor. If he does such a thing, his choice will probably fall on Kalakaua. In case the king should die without making provision for a successor, it should be the duty of the legislature to select a king from among the dozen high chiefs, male and female, who are eligible under the Hawaiian Constitution. Under these circumstances, if Prince William were thoroughly redeemed from his besetting sin, his chances would be about even with Kalakaua's. Funeral Music It is two o'clock in the morning, and I have been up toward the palace to hear some of the singing of the numerous well-born watchers, who are standing guard in the chamber of death. The voices were very pure and rich, and blended together without harshness or discord, and the music was exceedingly plaintive and beautiful. I would have been glad enough to get closer. When the plebeians outside the building resumed their distressing noise, I came away. In the distance, I hear them at it yet. Poor, simple, loving, faithful, Christian savages. Postscript The Swallow arrived here on Monday morning with Anson Burlingame, United States Minister to China, 
and General Van Valkenburg, United States Minister to Japan. Their stay is limited to 14 days, but a strong effort will be made to persuade them to break that limit and pass the 4th of July here. They are paying and receiving visits constantly, of course, and are cordially welcomed. Burlingame is a man who would be esteemed, respected, and popular anywhere, no matter whether he be among Christians or cannibals. The people are expecting McCook, our new minister, to these islands every day. Wharton B. and Mackey of Nevada arrived here in the last vessel and will start back in a week or two. They came merely for recreation. Several San Franciscans have come to Honolulu to locate permanently. Among them, Dr. A.C. Buffum. He has a fair and growing practice. Judge Jones is another. He has already more law practice on his hands than he can well attend to. And lastly, J.J. Ayers, late of the proprietor of the morning call, has arrived with material for starting a newspaper and job office. He has not made up his mind yet, however, to try the experiment of a newspaper here. Sanford, last chief engineer of the Ajax, came in the last vessel and proposes to settle in the islands, perhaps in the sugar line. He has gone to Maui to see what the chances are in that deservedly famous sugar-producing region. A letter arrived here yesterday morning giving a meager account of the arrival on the island of Hawaii of 19 poor starving wretches who had been buffeting a stormy sea in an open boat for 43 days. Their ship, the Hornet from New York, with a quantity of kerosene on board, had taken fire and burned in latitude 2 degrees north and longitude 135 degrees west. Think of their sufferings for 43 days and nights exposed to the scorching heat of the center of the torrid zone and at the mercy of a ceaseless storm. When they had been entirely out of provisions for a day or two and the cravings of hunger became insupportable, they yielded to the shipwrecked mariner's final and fearful alternative and solemnly drew lots to determine who of their number should die to furnish food for their comrades. And then the morning mist lifted and they saw land. They are being cared for at Sampo Hoi Hoi, a little seaside station I spent a night at two weeks ago. This boatload was in charge of the captain of the Hornet. He reports that the remainder of the persons in his ship, 20 in number, left her in two boats, under command of the first and second mates, and three boats kept company until the night of the 19th day when they got separated. No further particulars have arrived here yet, and no confirmation of the above sad story. Dinner to the Envoys The American citizens of Honolulu, anxious to show to their distinguished visitors the honor and respect due them, have invited them to partake of a dinner upon some occasion before their departure. Burlingame and General von Valkenburg have accepted the invitation and will inform the committee this evening what day will best suit their convenience. Mark Twain <laughs>